You'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll study verses 8 through 22. First Samuel 24, verses 8 through 22. Let me remind you where we are in this history of the ancient church. We have David, and he's running for his life from an enraged and crazy Saul. Not only that, he's done it multiple times. He's gone from this place to that place and another. And usually he's been successful in evading Saul, who wants to kill him. Uh, But in the circumstance in verse 24, we're introduced to David uh, in the strongholds of En Gedi, one of these caves in this wilderness. And David has finally, or Saul has finally, accidentally, come into the cave where David and his men were. Let me also remind you that even though David had the opportunity to strike him, he didn't do it. Instead, he just took a knife, slicing a corner off of his robe, and refused to kill the Lord's anointed. And even that act affected David's heart tremendously and caused him so much grief. And so we pick up there where David then comes out of the cave and confronts Saul, his father-in-law, his king, his friend who's out for his life. So let us read God's word and turn our attention to it. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out, and after whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord... Therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And... You have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And 
David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, as we study this ancient account, Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn to fear you more than we fear men. Oh, Lord, that our hearts would be directed towards what is holy, rather towards what would gratify the anger, even righteous anger, of our own hearts. Oh, Lord, disciple us as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We cannot control the actions of others, but we can control how we respond to the actions of others. And very often Christians are faced with cruel, painful, hateful acts and accusations and attacks at the hands of others. And sometimes uh, these come from strangers, but far more often than not, they come from people that we know. Sometimes people within the church, sometimes people within our own families, our friends, and sometimes even spouses. And I'm often faced with the simple question from brothers and sisters in Christ, what do I do? How do I deal with this? I love them, but they're being hateful. They're hurting me. I care about them, but I don't know how to stop them. What should I do? And the text of Scripture this evening, David is very much in the same situation. His friend, his king, his father-in-law wants to kill him. Again, this is not a stranger. This is someone that David has not only been part of his court, but David has been a minister of sorts to the soul of Saul. And nonetheless, Saul is out to kill him, trying to destroy him. And in David, we see a godly example of how we as Christian people ought to respond. First thing I want you to see in the response or the model of David is in verse 8, a godly retreat. A godly retreat. And then secondly, I want you to see a godly restraint. A godly restraint. Thirdly, a godly rebuke. A godly rebuke, verses 8 through 14. And then lastly, godly reliance. Godly reliance. As we come into this chapter, we have come a long way, in fact. We've seen David, the shepherd boy, the great champion of the people of Israel, take out the great champion of the Philistines with nothing but a, a sling and a stone. And, and it was all bound on his faith in God. It wasn't in any way, shape, or form that David thought that he was mightier, that his hand was great, but rather he knew that his God was great. And so he took in his hand and he attacked the Philistine champion, and the Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave him into his hand, and David glorified the Lord. Not only that, but we've seen the hearts of David and Saul be drawn near to one another. Saul collected him as a mighty man and brought him into his household and even gave him his daughter to be his wife, though it was with a significant uh, bridal price. David rose to the occasion and became not only an officer of the king, but the son-in-law of the king. And as we've studied the text of 1 Samuel, we've seen Saul give in to uh, jealousy and pride that he didn't put to death, and it overwhelmed him. And an evil spirit was set upon him by the Lord, is what the Scriptures tell us. And Saul, in rage, went after David again and again, with spear to kill him, with assassins 
to kill him, with an army to kill him, and at every turn and at every point, the Lord delivered David from the hand of Saul. And then in chapter 20, we have this final occasion where David is faced with an angry Saul and he is afraid. And there's this engagement between Jonathan, his best friend, and David. And the question is, what will your father do to me? Is he out to kill me? And Jonathan said, I'm going to come. I'm going to send you a message and it's going to be symbolic. I'm going to have a a young boy and go to retrieve an arrow that I fire. And depending on what I say to him, that will indicate to you what is the case. And it's there in chapter 20. We see this engagement. We see Saul angry at David, engaging with an army to pursue David. And David flees. And first he goes to the Philistines. And then from them, as a madman, he runs to the cave of Adullam. Then he runs from there to the wilderness of Ziph at Horash, and then from there to the wilderness of Ma'on, where he is now in the text, to a place called the Strongholds of Engedi. And he's running, and he's refusing to face Saul. And the thing that we've said in weeks past is it's not because David is weak or that he fears that Saul is great or powerful or that he's even afraid of the armies, but rather that he is in every way afraid of the Lord. David has no reason to fear any man, least of whom Saul. He's evaded death at his hand several times. No, he's concerned with the Lord and the Lord's own approbation and approval and the Lord's own purposes and the Lord's own hand on his life. And he is refusing to let the actions of Saul dictate his response, that the sinfulness of Saul would then be acted on by him, and so he would then be made to sin. And he's running. And again, why is he running? Well, you know, there's been the uh, old phrase that's gone around in sports circles that the best uh, defense is a good offense. Well, that's not at all what we see here. In fact, I think the best defense is more like something a boxer would say rather than a ball sport player. The best defense is not being there. The best defense from a punch is to duck the punch, make sure your head isn't in the space that the fist is aiming for. And so David retracts and he runs and he runs from Saul to avoid the fight. Not because he's a coward, but because he desires not to be engaged in something that could well become sinful for him. And so he runs, first among the Philistines, then to the valley in the cave of Adullam, then to the wilderness then to another, and here again in a cave. And there's something there for us to be learned. Uh, And it's simply this, that whenever you engage with somebody for whom their actions cannot be accounted for, what is the best and the first thing to do? Well, I think it's to simply try to avoid the hard, hot, bad, unreasonable, unholy situation. Take yourself out from it. Step back, whether it's a with Christ. Step back from them instead of engaging in their sin. Whenever they're crazed and carried about by a rage against you, what do you do? You move them away and you get them out of the situation so that then you can ensure that your actions are beyond sin. Whether it's with a family member, how do you avoid them? It's hard. Because why? We engage with them. Sometimes we live in the same households with them. How do we avoid it? 
Well, we have to be a little bit creative. Avoid circumstances that are going to set the situation off. Avoid conversations that you know won't end well. Avoid things that you can avoid as wholly as you can to be then a person that doesn't give themselves into the hand of sin. And that's where we find David. Again, in verse 8, where is he? He's been in the cave, and here and only here does he then come out of the cave. Stand with me, it's okay. He, he then is, is coming out of the cave to confront Saul finally. But I want to just simply say the first thing, the simplest thing, the easiest thing is to avoid it, to retreat from it, not out of cowardice, but out of a fear of the Lord. Secondly, we see godly restraint in verses 3, 8, 10, and 11. Verses 3, 8, 10, and 11. Yeah, verse 3 is not part of our, of our sermon text this evening, but you can look back and you read over this. And what we have in verse 3 is the circumstance of Saul coming into the cave, the stronghold in Gedi where David and his men were there encamped. And what we see in the Hebrew text is that Saul goes to relieve himself. It's pretty simple. He uh, leaves his army, his mighty men, and is there in solitude, not knowing who it is that's lurking in the dark of the cave. Well, it's David. It's the man that he's been uh, looking for. And what do the men of David encourage him to do? Well, they read the circumstances and they say, according to the providence of the Lord, God has given him into your hand. This man who's seeking your life, who's only here hunting you, here he is, and David, he doesn't see you. He doesn't hear you. He doesn't smell you. He has no sense that you're here, nor does he know that any of us are here. David, now, now's the time to strike David. Now is the time where you lift up your hand and you strike down your enemy. But there's restraint, isn't there? David then goes quietly, and what does he do? He just takes just the corner of his robe with his knife. Now, it's hard to imagine how this could go unnoticed, but it seems to have been completely unnoticed by Saul. He doesn't lay a hand on his flesh. He's careful. And last time when we studied this, I mentioned there could be a few different reasons why he would do this. One of them would be out of respect. The greater measure of respect would be not to touch him. That's why David himself struggles over what happened. Uh, There could be another psychological aim that David intends for him to leave and find that here a a clear slice has been taken off of the garment that's worn on his body and to simply realize an enemy got that close to me. I'm not that great. I'm not that strong. I didn't even know this could happen and they could have taken my life easily should they have wanted to, to terrorize Saul in his mind and in his soul. Is that what David does? No. Instead, he grieves over having done this. And then he goes out cave there in verse 8 and he confronts Saul regarding it and it's a very simple occasion but it's an occasion of David's uh, restraint now I I do want to simply say uh, that we have a a testimony of David where he reads for us his intentions so you can look there with me at verses 10 uh, through 11 as he speaks to Saul he says behold This day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, 
you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. What's at the very depth and at the bottom of the restraint of David? Is it fear of Saul? I don't think that's it. Is it sort of a grief that comes over him? I don't think that's it. What is it? Is it political aspirations? I don't think that's it either. I think it's the fear of the Lord. Did you see that that's what he said there? He cannot put his hand out, verse 10, against his Lord, his master, his king. Why? Because he's the Lord's anointed. He's God's man. The Lord's anointed. This is nothing less than the same word and phrase that we would translate in the New Testament by Christ or Christos. He is anointed by the Lord, chosen by the Lord, a leader and a king of the people of God. And he says, this is the reason I can't come out against you. Because of the Lord's hand upon you. Because of the things he delights and his plan and his will. His holy will and design for his people. I won't touch you. The Lord hasn't given me any freedom to do it. He hasn't commissioned my sword unto your flesh. I can't do that. It's because I fear the Lord. And it's the fear of the Lord that stays his hand. Godly restraint. How do we study hearts that practice godly restraint? Well, I'll tell you this. Though you may never be in a cave, seated behind an enraged Saul, you may well be in a circumstance where somebody wrongly accuses you, insults you, and drives you to righteous indignation, and your heart pumps your eyes Uh, dilate and the first thing you want to do is to take them out and you feel with every fiber of your being this would be holy however what does the Lord say how has the Lord directed you has he given you freedom to do this sort of thing has he given you freedom to strike your neighbor has he given you freedom to kill has he given you freedom to bear up in your mouth words of cursing has he given you freedom to do any of those things the answer simply is no Christian. He has not given you that freedom. He hasn't given you that freedom. He calls us to restraint in the fear of Him so that the sinful act of one person does not then cause us to sin. It's as simple as that. We don't strike out because we fear the Lord. We don't strike out because we fear the Lord. I do want to say that this is not in every circumstance. This is not in the case of war. This is not in the case of just circumstances. However, this is in very many cases that we find regularly in the midst of the people of God and in the relationships of our lives. We should study godly restraint out of the fear of God. Then in verses 8 through 14, we see this third strategy. I'm sorry, the fourth strategy, a godly uh, rebuke. No, a third. Excuse me, I have a little distraction. Godly rebuke. Verses 8 through 14, we see David rise from the cave and he comes out and he lifts his voice towards Saul. And he does this in a very unique way. And I want you to pay attention to the way that David speaks. He's not an enraged man. He's not unhinged. And he doesn't list a never-ending list of the wrongs that Saul has committed against him. So let's read over a few of these and outline them for you so that you can see the character of a godly rebuke. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, 
David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen the Lord, that he gave you into my hand in the cave. And though some told me to kill you, I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord or against the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. By the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you want my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. So I want to break this down piece by piece. And I want to say that first off, David outlines the sin and the temptation of Saul. He speaks about how other people have pursued Saul and infected his mind and slandered David and sent him out uh, to then be afraid of David. And you may say, well, hang on a second. I think we're at least somewhat aware of the inner workings of the heart of Saul, aren't we? After all, didn't you even say, Pastor, he was driven mad by, by pride? Well, yes, that's absolutely true. So what's going on with David? Well, David is deflecting, and he's doing it on purpose because he's being gracious, and he's being kind to Saul. His rebuke comes, but it comes with a soft blow. He doesn't rebuke an older man harshly, but he does so as a father. Not only that, he goes on in his rebuke, and the way that he outlines the acts of Saul, he doesn't then lay an attack toward him. He doesn't dress him down for unholiness. He doesn't then call him a cursed man. He doesn't say that his bed will be in Sheol or any of the other things, the curses that he could bring upon him, even righteous curses. Instead, he's careful and he's considered in his rebuke because he has an end. And that end is to win the heart of Saul, to turn him. In verse 8, he pleads with him, My Lord and King. And then he bows his body to the earth in deference and homage to Saul, his king. He gives him no ground upon which to then accuse David. Verse 10, he cites again to him, You are the Lord's anointed. You're the one that's chosen. You're the one that's on the throne. You're the one with the crown. And you're the one that the Lord is even presently sustaining. And so once again, he's pleading with him on the best terms and on the terms the Lord has established. And then in verse 11, very personally, he calls him my father. Now, this isn't just David, a young man speaking to an older. This is David speaking to a member of his own household. After all, he is the husband of Michael, the daughter of Saul. You see, his, his heart is to win the heart. David's goal, his design, is to see change. He's not pessimistic. He wants repentance. But then you may say, but you've got to do more than that if you're going to call him out, don't you, Pastor? Well, yes, and David does that in verse 13. He calls sin, sin. And look at how he does it. He does it in a way that's inscrutable. He cites a, what would un, be understood as a scriptural source against the king. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. Out of the wicked comes wickedness. 
so that he lays the word before him. And he says, here, Saul, apply it where it most fits. Is this you, Saul? He seems like a good expositor. But again, what's the goal? Well, he's aiming at the heart. He wants Saul to hear and Saul to respond and to stop what he's doing. He wants him to turn 180 degrees away from his sin and into repentance and to seek reconciliation with David and with the Lord, the God of heaven. He wants Saul to stop his sinning and to return. And I want to tell you this. If we are a people that engage with godly rebuke, we can never do so as if we're spanking someone to just punish them and harm them. It's not a strike against someone, but always, if it is godly, always will have a goal of regaining the brother and winning a repentant heart. It's not an either-or. It's only one thing, one thing we can have in mind so that the heart turns away from sin and unto the Lord. Now, a lot of you will say, I don't know, I think whenever I give godly rebuke, it's, it's as if I'm at the end, I've given up, and that's what comes. It's sort of the explosion that blows everything up at the very end. And, and there's really no hope. It's really just a, it's a release. It's an explosion. Um, something that the pessimistic heart does to, to maim, wound, and destroy. But that's not where David is. Why can David give a godly rebuke? And it's because he's not pessimistic about the soul of Saul. Even though Saul has given him no reason to be hopeful. How can he be that way? How can he be hopeful? It's because of the character of God. David has seen the Lord slay giants. He has seen the Lord turn back armies. He has witnessed the Lord's mighty hand over impossible circumstances. And he knows that the Lord holds the hearts of kings in his hands and turns them as a river. It's the character of God that allows David to then render a godly rebuke. It's God's character, God's power, God's own investment in the hearts of his people that can then lead any of us to be able to give a godly rebuke and hope. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't turn back from a godly rebuke. And don't confuse a godly rebuke with the last verbal swipe to destroy an enemy. Repentance and the glory of God and the power of God always need to be the end, the goal, and the expectation of a godly rebuke. And in verses 12 through 16, we see the fourth thing I want to show you in the tactic of David, and that is godly reliance. Godly reliance. One of the things that I've been asking continually through this whole thing is how can he do this? How can he retreat? How can he restrain? How can he rebuke? Well, it's because he fears God and believes in his power. That's the constant testimony that David makes in the text of Scripture. It's God's hand. It's his reliance upon the hand of the Lord in all of this to make things right, whether it is the vindication of David's own name or whether it is the Lord settling the things between him and Saul. Look at verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. He believes in the Lord. That's why he can go to him. 
in all of these things. That's why he can stop. That's why he can behave in a holy way. He relies on him. I want to give you three things specifically that bolster and establish his godly reliance. The first of them is this. He believes that God will not justify his sin just because it was enacted on a a deserving person. Understand that? David relies on God because he believes that God will not cover over his sin just because Saul deserved it. He believes there in the justice of God and in his holiness. The second thing is that he believes that God is powerful and that nothing is beyond his capacity to redeem. That's why he can rely on God. He believes that God is powerful and nothing is beyond his capacity to redeem, not even the hard heart of Saul. His God is in heaven. His God is the one that raised up Saul. His God is the one that placed him on the throne. His God is the one who has been dealing with him. And his God, even in this circumstance, can put his hand upon Saul and turn him into the most godly man in all of Israel. That's his commitment. That's how he can rely on God. Because of the power he believes God to uphold. And then I think lastly or thirdly, he can rely on God because he believes that God will avenge because God is just. He believes that David himself doesn't have to lift a hand. He believes he doesn't have to defend himself. He believes he doesn't have to see his name made good. He believes that his God ultimately will pursue these things all the way to the end. God's going to have his day, and God is going to have his way, and God is going to punish the sin of Saul that he has carried out against David. David does not have to be his own avenger, and he does not have to be a man who seeks revenge at his own hand. God will do that for him. Friends, that's at the very heart of every one of God's people who have ever experienced insult, who have ever experienced violence or even death at the hands of someone who hates them. God is the avenger. That's how we can rely on God. It's our view of God. It has to do with our view of God. We can't manage what other people do. We can only manage what we do. And we ought to always be a people who act Because our God is a living God and a holy God and a just God filled with power. That has to be what dictates the way we respond. That has to be the way that we respond even to circumstances of family members, church members, or even spouses who would attack us and seek to destroy us. Verses 17 through 22, we have Saul's response. And it is a response that's deeply affected. Whenever I looked at this, some commentators read Saul in a variety of ways. They want to read Saul possibly as being insincere. They want to read Saul possibly as feigning some sort of uh, of sorrow or sadness to draw David farther out of the cave. But I don't think the text gives us any reason to read it in that fashion at all. Instead, in verse 16, we have Saul's response. Is this your voice, my son David? Immediately, the relationship has changed. Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He wept. The picture is tears streaming down his face. David said, and he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. 
He's deeply affected and he's deeply moved. Saul goes on to charge David not to cut off his household, not to extinguish his name, not to raise a hand against his son Jonathan. He calls him into a covenant uh, with David. And, and so David does this. And we're told in verse 22 that then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold, presumably back into the cave there at En Gedi. All of our best efforts to deal with actions like this that a person may bring against us, we ought not think they will have no effect. We also ought not think that they will always have the effect that we've designed. We ought to always be confronted that they'll have the effect that God has designed. If you're familiar with the text of 1 Samuel, you'll know that uh, Saul doesn't stop. He doesn't cease all of his operation against David. He does for a time, but then he's right back to it. He's engaged by the men of Ziph, the Ziphites, to come against David. It's, it's simple, and Saul takes up a sword against David, even though he doesn't ever eventually uh, come to trade blows with swords against David. Nonetheless, his heart isn't permanently changed, but none of us should be concerned with that. We should be concerned with what pleases God and what accords with his righteousness. We ought to always act out of fear of him rather than the fear of men or the anger that we might have against other men. We do what is right before the eyes of God, not what's right even to our own sensitivities or our enraged passions. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we could come and worship you, that we could study your word, that we could take a good example from a father in the faith, King David. Father, we ask that you would help us to stand to this, that, Lord, we would have faith in you, that we would know you and the person who you are, and that we would act according uh, to your holy commands. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.